0: Schubert's G major sonata was published in 1826 with the subtitle Fantasy, Andante, Minuet, and Allegretto. Not quite the Sonata quasi una fantasia that Beethoven dubbed his famous C sharp minor. Moonlight wasn't his title any more than Fantasy was Schubert's. But the publisher obviously felt that the peculiar quality of the opening movement needed some explaining, and fantasy seemed to do the job. It may also have been a ploy to attract more buyers. Sonatas not being the most popular form of piano music on sale, particularly one by a composer known only as a songwriter. But was there perhaps a feeling that this work was a little unsonata like? In some editions of Schubert's sonatas, this G major is placed last, as though it was an afterthought, or somehow not quite belonging. Yet it wasn't his last. Three big sonatas were still to come, sonatas which cemented his reputation as one of the great composers in the medium. So what then is the G major sonata? An uneasy stepping stone between apprenticeship and master composer, or perhaps a wonderful insight into the maturing mind of one of music's greatest melodists? only to hear a few bars to get some flavour of what Schubert was about, forget the furrowed brow and clenched fist of Beethoven, Schubert, at least at this stage of his career, was acutely sensitive to lyricism as the driving force behind his music. Listen to the very start again. This is no bold symphonic start, more like a gentle welcome into the world of nature and song. The opening theme is more a mood than a melody, rather as the opening of Beethoven's Moonlight is, only instead of broken chords, Schubert simply repeats one chord, (laughs) and he adds a salient little ripple to emphasise the repetition. The ripple eventually generates a little tailpiece. But the whole thing still boils down to something very basic indeed. It could hardly be simpler. But note how the little ripple is enough to transform that basic chord sequence into something magical. This is hardly what we'd expect from a sonata. In fact, it could so easily be the start of one of Schubert's songs. Der Ergnoe Gerige, the inquisitive one, from Schubert's Die Schöne-Müllerin. The mood and figuration are exactly the same. And the rest of the sonata's introduction would suit a song perfectly as well, perhaps one of those rare moments of imagined peace in Winterizer. That's what it might be if it was going to be a song intro, but what Schubert actually does at the end is this, which leads the music onwards and upwards, making us expect a continuation. This is a sonata, and not a song after all, and what Schubert is also doing is flagging up the ascent to the third degree of the scale. In terms of tonic sulphur, the Mi note, which has been uppermost since the first chord. Actually, it's another Beethoven work which that calls to mind. Not the Moonlight, but the Fourth Piano Concerto. that, too, sports the repeated note idea that Schubert explores in his sonata. I wonder if that's deliberate. Did Schubert know Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto? What Beethoven does next certainly suggests that he did. A magical switch to the key of B exactly what Schubert does now in the Sonata's opening. Whether Schubert knew the Beethoven concerto or not, it's strange how both composers put particular emphasis on the relationship of keys three notes apart, G to B here. It sounds such an academic point. Why should anyone outside the world of musicology care about such things? Well, the fact is that the way Schubert builds his sonata from this relationship profoundly affects its character. From the 19th century to the present, composers have used keys a third apart as a way of creating a special kind of contrast, one which is softer, less stark. In the 20th century, Sir Michael Tippett was aware of this Schubert-Beethoven connection, and it becomes a dramatic point in his opera *The Knot Garden*. In the second act, the characters are singing a Schubert song from *Die schöne Müllerin*, but listen to what happens when it's suddenly interrupted. A chord of G, precisely the chord which begins Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, abruptly breaking off the song, which is in B. Tippett drawing from Schubert and from Beethoven not just the song, but also the composer's favorite key relationship. In the sonata, An exploration of the same idea is almost its only raison d'être. for now, the character of the music has changed completely. Where we had static chords, we now have forward-looking octave scales and the rhythm has changed. This is the second theme, achieved with virtually no transition. The meditative ripple has become a skipping dance. As for the melody, it's not only stated in virile octaves, a quite new pianistic sonority, but leaps the octave as well. All of which is the catalyst for even more activity. Schubert repeats the tune as a variation, the melody line broken up into pattering semiquavers. For a moment the whole thing comes tumbling down. And that's very typical of the way the sonata's put together, lyrical episodes interspersed with sudden flashes of something darker before order is quickly restored. Schubert seems constantly to be questioning what sort of work he's writing. Sonata? Fantasy? Song without words? Or what? What comes next, in the development, is even more surprising what I called the ripple at the start, now has a much more threatening edge, tossed between right and left hands. And to stir things up even more, Schubert adds some stormy rising chords. The combination is a world away from the tranquillity of the opening. complete change of character. The genial first theme has become something to be gone for, against which the energetic, though lyrical, second subject tries to cajole some calm. Schubert repeats the process in even more remote keys, before the second theme gets drawn into the fray as well. All attempts at charm gone, stripped of its harmony, striding about in bare octaves. Strange how what set out as a carefree, amiable journey has developed into something altogether more involved. One Leipzig reviewer apparently found the movement's fantasy title baffling. Compared to Beethoven's moonlight fantasy, Schubert's attempt was distinctly constrained in its freedom of expression. But Schubert always conceived this as a sonata, even if he was exploring some new ways of going about things. Eventually, he effects a very subtle return for the traditional recall of the first section, except that there is a difference. See if you can spot it. Schubert truncates the first theme considerably, and we arrive at the second theme almost immediately. But most striking of all is the fact that Schubert has omitted that astonishing sidestep from G to B. We thought that was the point of the whole sonata, but here it's gone by the board altogether. Instead, the movement moves to the finish with a final reaffirmation of those meditative, repeated notes from the very start. The first movement began like a song, turned into a dance, and stumbled into a storm. It's one of Schubert's most impressive achievements, which, as I say, is undersold by the published title of fantasy. But maybe the publisher was alluding to the fact that the first movement doesn't quite wear the mean of a sonata. It's pensive and meditative. The prevailing mood is introspective, not to say intimate, rather than oratorical. And this is something that in the immediate post-Beethovenian era would have been seen as contrary to the proper nature of the sonata principle. The music is perhaps more in the mould of some of Schubert's more picturesque works. One of Schubert's Moment Musico*, the freestanding piano pieces that he wrote alongside his last three great sonatas, full of a freedom of spirit which seems to pervade the G major sonata as well. But the first movement is a true sonata movement, unlike the Moment Musico* and the *Impromptus* that Schubert was writing about this time, and the way in which this sonata develops, however passively, is in direct contrast to the free-wheeling lyricism of the other pieces. So, will the second movement be more than a musical moment? Will it too be a genuine sonata movement? Where will it take us? song. Much of the individual quality of this music is due to the fact that the tune is, for the most part, doubled at the octave. It gives it a homespun quality, like an extra dollop of thick cream on the apple pie. Life seems perfect, doesn't it? Although Schubert's last years were undoubtedly darkened by the mortal threat of his syphilis, there were also happy and relaxed periods of remission, calm and creative enjoyment. This sonata comes from just such a period, the spring of 1826. The sonata was published in April. It does seem to me to have a spring-like feel, but the next section explodes the whole thing in a trice in music of extraordinary severity. Flash out again rather as they had in the sterner moments of the first movement, but the effect is even more cutting. What is it that forces its way so abruptly to the surface? Is it a railing against fate, the illness that had robbed Schubert of his youth and hopes of happiness? The response this time is not so much cajoling as pleading. there, once again, are the quietly insistent repeated notes that we heard in the first movement. Repeated notes are, to be sure, a feature of Schubert's piano writing, but I can't think of many places where they're used so much as part of the thematic process. They were there in that angry outburst. But the other salient point about this outburst is that it occurs in the key of B minor, the me Mi key of the first movement the key of that passage that Schubert left out of the recapitulation. Maybe that's why he did it, to maximise the effect when it returns here. But after a repeat of the angry music, even more densely figured and passionately reinforced, the genial morning song returns. As so often with Schubert's slow movements, its mood has been affected by the earlier outburst, and the flurries of decorative notes sound more than a little flustered, as if trying to pretend everything's all right. The skittish, slightly nervous demeanour of the first theme is totally justified because the second main idea comes storming back, in no way placated, in fact in a demonic mood. magnificent despair in those swinging octaves flung around with theatrical abandon. But calm eventually returns, aided by the gently insistent repeated notes, and the song comes back to round the movement off. Now it seems to express a certain acceptance a bowing to the inevitable. I may be romanticising, but, well, this is romantic music, in the best sense of the word. Just like the first, this second movement began like a calm, relaxed song, but was interrupted by music of a terrifying power. To me, this sounds like the balancing act of a composer very much in the midst of a musical journey. His early sonatas, like his early symphonies, grapple with the essential structure of the form, handling contrasts, managing the drama. His late works, The Last Quartets, The Unfinished, and C Major Symphonies, The Last Piano Sonatas, have clearly found a powerfully effective original way of organising lyrical material symphonically. This sonata is right on the cusp, lyrical ideas for the first time being thrown wholeheartedly into the symphonic mix. But whereas the earlier movements take a soothing calm as their starting point, The third movement seems as though it's trying to harness the power of those dramatic interruptions right from the start. There's a grim determination at play in this minuet, which seems entirely in place, both psychologically and musically. The texture abounds with octaves to make it seem as a piece with the previous movements. Let's take out the other notes for a moment. As well as those octaves, the theme displays the sonata's characteristic repeated notes but binding it even more is the choice of key, B minor again. In fact, the opening bars seem a distant relative to the angry outburst in the slow movement, what I called the railing against fate idea. That becomes a source of positive energy, a grim determination as the dance continues, with rough-sounding decorations treading on the heels of the note in front. While above and below, the repeated notes are given an even greater insistence. An almighty type of hammering. changes of dynamic add to the hectic quality of this dance as it tosses itself around unable to acknowledge what it really feels. But now the tables are turned and the middle section attains the semblance of bliss in an ethereal B major. Everything about this melody induces calm, the legato tune, which sounds as though it's slower than the opening, though it isn't really, the comparatively slow rate of harmonic change, the gentle rocking bass, Nirvana, almost, a glimpse of it anyway. Schubert has so far offered us three wonderful movements in his G major sonata, quite unlike anything else he'd written for the keyboard. And they've been subtly linked as well, by shared textures and some neat linking motives. Deep down we seem to sense some underlying logic, a feeling of belongingness, you might say, of everything fitting together. The secret, again, lies in the keys. We've had a first movement in G... a second movement in D and a minuet and trio in B. Put those three key notes together and you get a chord of G, the home key of the whole sonata. And now, to complete the circle, The finale returns us to the key of G with a relaxed, almost improvisatory theme, characterised by, yes, you've guessed, repeated notes. feeling of security, over fifty bars of homely, unadulterated G major. Schubert seems intent on reaffirming the dominance of the home key, which he's studiously avoided since the first movement. There have been perhaps five bars in all where the chord of G has been sounded. A more jovial atmosphere is hard to imagine. Never mind the storms, Schubert seems to be saying. Now the sun's out, let's enjoy it. His methods are simple. Unadventurous keys, those quirky repeated notes, and a melody which flits effortlessly between the hands. Isn't there a certain rustic feel here as well? Something to do with those little left hand figures? That last little run up, and similar ones before it, include what's known as a horn fifth. It got the name because it was a typical progression of valveless brass instruments. It became a symbol of the great outdoors, the hunt, the forest, nature, freedom. Beethoven used exactly the same idea in his Eroica Symphony, though this time the horns are real ones. As for Schubert though, so far so calm. But where exactly is this movement going? How else does it relate to the rest of the sonata, other than by the use of that motif? Up to now, it's avoided any of the dramas in the previous three movements. A new theme carries on the amiable quaver pattering, much as before, and seems closely related to the theme we've already heard. A much more lyrical idea is introduced, an almost Beethovenian idea, and in the Beethovenian key of C minor, it's purposeful in intention and soon threatens to roar. For instance, this genial finale has taken on a much darker hue, enriched by the flamboyant flourishes in the right hand. Almost Brahmsian in reach, the finale seems to have grown in scale. We're aware that we've traversed a lot of territory. The genial opening theme? pattering response and the return of the main idea have been pushed into the background by this new sequence. In terms of the work's shape and message, this is a defining moment. Will the finale continue to develop into a glorious summation of all that's gone before? Beethoven would surely have done something like that. Just as the movement seems to have got underway on an epic scale, Schubert brings back the delicate opening to lead us safely home. So it's no spectacular climax. Instead, Schubert seems to meditate on our journey, and whereas earlier movements shifted dramatically between calm and storm, the finale is disturbed by only the briefest of squalls. And to emphasise this new order, Schubert has another neat trick up his sleeve. Remember how the earlier movements had been dragged from the home key of G to the rather distant B major, or in the case of the opening, B minor? Well, in the finale, Schubert gives that idea a brilliant twist. Lurch, but this time so different to the more honey-like B-flat major. For Schubert it's a way of reinterpreting one of the most important ideas of the work, the relationship between two keys a third apart, G and B, in a wonderfully reassuring and reflective way. That might seem academic, but I assure you it's not. Quite apart from anything else, it suggests that we should revise our view of Schubert as an unthinking child of nature. His life was dynamic, even if the essential nature of his thinking wasn't. He was one of the most prolific composers who ever existed. His greatest music was created under difficult conditions when he was physically ill and psychologically stressed. He needed to write it, nothing passive in that. His art developed as he moved from work to work, clearly the result of a conscious grappling with the problems of form and content. Given that, I'm not sure I entirely agree with Alfred Brendel when he writes compared to Beethoven, the architect, Schubert composed like a sleepwalker. In Beethoven's sonatas, whenever we lose our bearings, says Brendel, they justify themselves at all times. Schubert's sonatas happen. There is something disarmingly naïve in the way they happen. Brendel seems to be saying, Beethoven dynamic, Schubert passive. But although his sonatas may sound naïve, I don't believe they happened accidentally.